So these scorch marks on the door, Colin, uh, are referred to by locals as the devil's fingerprints. And the event is remembered in this verse, which I thought I'd read out. All down the church, in midst of fire, the hellish monster flew. And, passing onward to the choir, he many people slew. Ian Rowlands and I'm Colin Williams and welcome to Beneath the Stream a podcast about the human experience in the non-human world uh, we're in the eaves I guess of uh, Blytheborough Church in Suffolk Colin describe the scene yeah so we're are we on the east side of the church maybe yeah, the, the least windy side yes that's where we are because <laughs> it's pretty windy today yeah yeah and we're and we're looking out the church is on a rise above a kind of uh, we're surrounded by there's a there's a river down below us just beyond the sort of ivy clad wall of the churchyard and there's a river down below us looking out over to some low hills over to the east there um and this river's snaking away from us and lots of sort of boggy marshy there's some reed beds ahead of us um surrounding the river it's a lovely spot yeah colloquially known as the cathedral of the marshes so um yeah it's, it's a beautiful spot with big skies and steeple rising up now i drive the road past blytheborough church quite regularly it's lit up at night it's a magical illuminated site and every time i see it i'm reminded of the legend of black shuck and we're going to come to that in a little bit but it there's more to black shuck and the legend of this mythical black hound uh, than that might first appear and i think it speaks to us of um our relationship with domestic animals but somehow that relationship often steps beyond a simple animal relationship. And sometimes they're a, a guardian to something else or symbolic of something else. So dogs are like the oldest domestic animal and traceable to the Paleolithic. Um, and they had a peculiarly close relationship with humans. And a lot of the relationship we have with dogs is reflected in myth, legend, early literature. And much of it seems to clearly have a, a link with the underworld, the other world, the, the mythical, the beyond. It's not unique to, to hounds. I know bulls, boars, owls, cuckoos all have that association with deities for humans and rituals and veneration. But a lot of archaeological evidence and mythology has a specific role for dogs, for hounds. And the phrase is psychopomps. <laughs> psychopomps being the guides on the path to the other world the guardians of the liminal zone at the boundaries of worlds and that's what i wanted to explore today so let's go tales of monstrous black dogs that's what i kind of wanted to lead in with on this because often with glowing red eyes they're found worldwide but especially in england um so black shuck is the, is the popular one, and it's particularly resonant here in East Anglia. We'll come to that later. But many regions have their own versions. So, you know, we know that Black Dog Legends inspired uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's Hound of the Baskervilles, and we've got Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. And a cursory search, particularly locally here, soon reveals pubs, restaurants, inns, with the name Black Dog, but it's, it's kind of scattered across England. So it's a why, I suppose, was the thing I found myself thinking, you know, it's beyond the, isn't it fascinating, element to it. 
And there's a lot of archaeological evidence that shows that dogs are found laid out in alignment with, uh, with, with monuments, ancient monuments. So Flag Fen was one that I came mm. across in my research. It's Neolithic Bronze Age complex near Peterborough. We've talked about it before on previous podcasts. And uh, black dogs have been found there which seem to have been ritually killed and laid out almost as guardians to entrances. So spirit guardians and, 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 and guardians. And, and, and that flag fen has a lot of ritual associated with it that seem to be attached to funerals, hmm. death. Uh, and at Caldecott in Gwent is another Bronze Age site, evidence for dogs buried in a way that suggests they're guardians to the underworld, right. the, the other world, the ritual guardian. And that's the bit that really fascinated me because we, we as modern humans have this relationship with domestic animals as we're very fond of them, very close to them. They're working animals that, that, but clearly our history with the other suggests that dogs had a role to play in that Mm. role with the other. So that's, that's kind of where I wanted to go with this was to explore that element to it. Um, so I have a very interest in, in shamanic traditions, and if you look at Siberian shamanic traditions, then it's it's very clear that that dogs were. I stumbled across one here. You know, barking dogs were often a something you encountered. The shaman encountered on on routes into the underworld, and uh, in Koryaric shamanism, the entrance to the land of the dead is guarded by dogs. Mm. So, in a way, the situation could be summarised as follows: really that. The land of the dead is guarded by a canine or lupine creature. Um, Often that land has to be reached by crossing a body of water or some passage into the underworld, something that you have to do. And and it's very interesting because I stumbled across sort of a lot of around um, St. Christopher. So tell me what you know about St. Christopher. Oh, St. Christopher, yeah, the, the... The story of the stranger who needed to get across a river. Yeah. Um, and of course, as as the story goes, and interestingly, I, I I don't know this for sure, but there's there's certainly verses in the New Testament um, uh, that that talk about the the blessings that arise from treating strangers with kindness. Um, Indeed, there is a scripture that talks about uh, those of us that have that have done that, taken a stranger in or helped a stranger, have entertained angels unawares. Is is oh, really? the is the oh, phrase really? I think that's used in that scripture, and uh, and so I guess yeah, it partly springs from that. The stranger that needed to cross the river, Saint Christopher, crossing the river, and as as the crossing went on, the torrent became stronger, the the tug of the current became stronger, and it became a real effort to. To get this person upon his back across the across the river, only to be revealed as a, an incarnation of of the Christ or the yes, Christ child. It, it, yeah, exactly yeah. that. And I guess some writers I've seen talk about this speculate on this is redolent of uh, an initiation, a passage mm. that has to be undertaken to cross the the challenging water and help someone across. In this case, you know, Jesus incognito, as it were. Mm. Um, but I was fascinated that in the Old English, the Passion of St. Christopher, uh, St. Christopher is described this way, quote, 
He was of the race of mankind who are half hound. Oh, I've never come across that before. And uh, he was of the nation of men that have the head of a dog and from the country where men devour each other. So in that way, St. Christopher's portrayed, you know, the head of a hound. His locks were extremely long. His eyes shone as bright as the morning star. And his teeth were as sharp as a boar's tusks. Mm. Mm. And, and that, that, that borderline that we know exists between very ancient beliefs and a Christianity supposed, proposed on top. Mm. So you have these two myths really interestingly connected. Then with St. Christopher in some sort of dog form, helping people make a passageway into yeah. the realm. And, and I think I'm, you know, since we're here talking about the, uh, the, the thin veils between this world and the next world, or this world and, and, and the other world, the nether world, whatever, what, however we describe it. Really interesting you picked up on water as a, as a as a gateway between those two things because that is that's that's in mythologies and belief systems across the globe isn't it um and you only have to think about um how um i guess archaeologists or uh anthropologists believe that a lot of those things like bog bodies yeah. sacrifices yes. were thrown into water, water. Um, because it was that the way that water mirrored the land as it as it sat upon the land meant that 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 mirror that water was a was the thing that separated yeah. us um, from that other the other one. So that's where yeah. yeah. So that that's where the the sacrifices happened. Uh, and and of course, as you say, you know, you think of sticks and the river sticks and and uh, the ferryman paying the ferryman. Um, yeah, that, that that water creeps up quite a lot as as as, as the boundary between us and the next world. Yeah. So I, I'd never in my, you know, let's think about in everyday life, there are a few breeds of dog associated with water. There are some, I think it's Spanish water hounds yes. and things like that. Yeah. But generally, I don't really associate dogs with water. We don't like going in the water. But for ancient peoples, hmm. there was a boundary to be crossed, often watery. Hmm. And there were dogs guarding yeah. that way or symbolized yeah. in some way, you know, protecting yeah. that. Yeah. I, I found it really interesting. So, so, so remind, remind me the 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 dog or jackal-headed god of yes. Egypt is Anubis. Anubis, is, is yeah, right? yeah, and um, and linked early on with Sirius, the dog star. Mm. You know, so I guess that that's nobody's quite clear on the connection between Sirius and and, and dogs, but it and, is and, interesting. And that's interesting because we're obviously um, bombarded with, yeah. You know, if you take the, you know, it's, it's. I think we're just coming up to the. I think we're just coming up to the hundredth anniversary of the discovery of Tutankhamun's tomb. That's I right. Think, yes. up to yeah, 1921. Yeah, yeah. So, so we're you know we're we're seeing all these images again. We're seeing those amazing black and white photographs, those things. And I think there's there's few things more striking from mm -hmm. a, apart from once that second chamber was broken into and and Tutankhamun himself was found. There's few more striking images of of that. Of Anubis um, on um, uh, on that plinth, covered in that sort of rough cloth yes. that we saw in that yeah. black and white photograph, because it, it's it's bearing as a as a dog-headed animal was was so um, 
so Guardian-like. Mm-hmm. Everything about it is alert yes. um, in the way that that, that, is, that is stylized and carved. Um, you can you can certainly see how strong these, these these dog images were for people when it came to their their journey from this world to the next. And and, and, and I wanted to pick up on that later, but it's made me dive into it now. Is that we we have that we think these are ancient beliefs. We think that that, that, that for some reason that was important to ancient peoples, you know, two three thousand years ago. But um, there are quite a lot of common place stories of people encountering dog headed or wolf-like humans beyond the werewolf imagery in in modern times Mm. you know i mean i think it's something i was researching it's like in 38 of 50 states in the u.s there is some legend of a dog-headed man or werewolf type creature seen oh no really oh yeah yeah, i mean i mean you know there's um dog man radio it's one of the podcasts where it's just just stories about this but the beast of bray road you know, it, this animal, this creature is still being seen. And whenever people see this, it seems that there there are some who see it like black shark as a hound with fiery red eyes. And there are some that see it werewolf-like. But the most striking comment by people is, it looked most like Anubis. Mm. It looked like a you know, muscular human, or not always muscular, with the head of a dog. Mm. So we're dealing with archetypes here. And of course, that fascinates me. The as Western humans, we we believe things are either factual or non-factual. They exist or they don't exist. But of course, you know, Jungian psychologists would say there are archetypes, and that we they're around us all the time. We project them, and things can be real and unreal. If mm. that makes any sense. Mm. So why why are we humans still seeing dog? I mean, are they real? <clears throat> Excuse me, or are they part of our? DNA, our structure, our things that make us human, our links with archetypes that uh, are we projecting or are they projecting onto us? It's a deep territory there, but it is very interesting, isn't it? Um, yeah, and, and and it must be a very complicated web of how these things layer over, over human history. And so, you know, we've got to assume the, the, neither the Egyptians nor the shamanic, northern shamanic people would... would conjuring this out of nowhere um that, that, that there must have been a something they inherited that that led them to those things and with each with each you know with each successive bundle of generations those things would layer on top of one another and uh, they would get added to bits taken away I, I bits changed uh, to, to, yes. to arrive at these at these points it must be a very very complex I, uh, tree of mythology and tree of belief to untangle that is is, is, is mm. difficult i mean even anubis that you mentioned because anubis has a, a very long i mean let, we're talking about in in egypt where the jackal is the more common scavenger mm. than a dog for, mm. for those cultures and uh, the dog-headed or jackal-headed anubis is also seen as that um, psychopomp, the guardian of the of the underworld, the link to spirit world, the divine embalmer, um, and it's a very old cult, yeah. older than Osiris, traced back to Sumerian goddess Baal, yeah. who was also dog headed, um, and there's some speculation that the name Baal, which is was the name of the goddess, is pretty close to Bow Wow, isn't it? It's really it's pretty dog like, well, really. Well, and it's also the. Um, and and obviously we always have to reference some weird bit of pop culture in these podcasts as well. And it reminds me of the film The Omen, 
where um, it's kind of uh, implied that Damien's mother was a jackal. I don't know if you remember that. Do you remember that that bit of the omen? Yeah. And so it's odd that this it's had this dual role of being guardian of the underworld, but also companion to us, and and maybe you know keep keeping us safe from the underworld as well as guarding the other worlds or the nether the nether worlds themselves. But also it has this this association with evil um, and this association with um, the devil, mm-hmm. um, which is, you know, say very close in some of the Black Shuck stories. Um, but yeah, yeah, in, in, in The Omen, it was uh, Damien's mother was a jackal. That is interesting. of August 1577 at Blythra Black Shuck is said to have burst in through the doors of Holy Trinity Church to a clap of thunder he ran up the nave past a large congregation killing a man and boy and causing the church steeple to collapse through the roof as the dog left he left scorch marks on the north door which can be seen in the church to this day and that's where we're calling (laughs) We're right here, and, and I'm sure some of our listeners have been here to Blythe Church, but what we're looking at is a huge oak medieval door. I assume it's oak, certainly some of these modern additions are. And we're, we're inside the church, and on the inside of the church here we have these these great big sort of dark yeah, streaks, in, indentations, yeah, f- five marks. I'm just running my fingers through them now where the... Lots of people have been here and run their fingers onto these <laughs> scorch marks because they've been worn smooth by by hands over the years. But yeah, h- here they are, evidence, as it were, of the story of Black Shuck. It's it's a beautiful spot. The door has such amazing pattern, a ancient wood with woodworm and, and marks in it, and great cast iron, rusty wrought iron hinges. But the black marks are, are still here, and uh, and I suppose what we're talking about here is. People have speculated, was there a, an electrical storm that brought the steeple down? What, what actually was it that caused the death and mayhem? Because at the same time, or, or shortly beforehand, Black Shuck, this monstrous black hound, and named as the devil in such likeness that God knoweth all who worketh at it, um, was at Bungay as well, a, a town just shortly up the road. So, and Black Shuck is, a, is a, a legend that you'll find throughout East Anglia. when Anubis as a cult was transferred to classical Greece it was much more wolfish it was much more um, 
the prototype of the werewolf, I guess. It was much more hell-related, and um, the sort of lycanthrope really became more of a thing. The more you know, so, 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 how much then are our? How much is our is the image we choose to cast these dog-like characters in? It feels like it must that must be heavily influenced by um, uh, uh, our everyday cultural experience, mm-hmm. and so yeah. So as you say, it, in in Egypt, it was easy for the Egyptian to think of it as a jackal because that was that was the dog-like animal that they saw and experienced. In in Greece, much easier for them to treat it as a wolf, wolf. Yeah. because it was, and and in our in our you know in in, in Great Britain, the stories of of black shuck it was seemingly much easier to treat it as a dog a, a large domesticated yes. animal rather because than been a no wolf wolves in the or, UK yeah. since the 1740s mm, mm. yeah so there must be there must be something in that um, i think it's really interesting because um, we go back to the let's say the anglo-saxon roots of this country the uk where we're talking about certainly in england uh, and in beowulf you know the great story the great myth the great legends the, the monster grendel and mother of earth described as uh, and I, I do apologize to my anglo-saxon here but uh verdo so as of brimwolf grundvergren it's something all of which implies sort of lupine wolfish mm. kind of quality to them and grendel is also described as a skooker a demon so we have a a switch there i guess there were still wolves in anglo-saxon times but not many left yeah. in, in England at that point. Um, and Skooker is thought to be where the link is to Shuck. Ah, interesting. So yeah. the general idea that Grendel, the monster, represented a sort of canine dog, a wolfish demon that haunted the Fenlands and marshes might be the way that this culture has interpreted it. As you yeah. say, so we have, we have a, a wolfish hound yeah, as opposed to a jackal-headed, and 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 Grendel's association in in Beowulf, Grendel's association, and especially Grendel's mother yes. association with water is extremely strong, yes. isn't it? Yes, um, extremely strong, uh, and actually a lot of the in the poem, a lot of the setup of Beowulf as a hero um, uses examples of Beowulf's mastery of the water. Um, oh, and so yeah, there's yeah, you know yeah. there's there's imagery of him you know I'm I'm not going to quite get this right he's pretty much sort of you know wrestling whales <laughs> uh, and things underwater and him swimming deep down and over long distances and so his master so his his portrayal as a hero is very much associated with being able to conquer one of one of human's greatest fears yeah, which is okay. deep water yeah. or, or long distances or drowning or those sorts of things so it's very deliberate and then of course with with Grendel and as I say more especially Grendel's mother coming from the water from the marshes and the mears um and 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 coming down and and Grendel's mother effectively living in the lake um then very very deliberate bringing together of of water imagery and 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 monster imagery there yeah. plus th- uh, plus yeah. our hero conquers both of those things conquers the fear of the water as well as conquers conquers grendel and, and grendel's mother so very very deliberate work there That's by good. the poet yeah. um, to to play on our 
just like any modern novelist, any modern ghost story writer, to play on our fears, um, and and uh, and f it, it, in the work itself, find some redemption from those things. And so that's interesting, isn't it? Because you've got you know the hero is going out to that sort of liminal area where the the monsters appear from mm. and enter into our world, and some of them can be dog-like, monster-like, and some of them can be these dogs could also be guardians. So whatever it is about that boundary, mm. I mean, let's be honest, the typical analogy would be guard dogs patrolling yeah. know, the, the, the fence around some you know, industrial site or, or whatever, or your garden, uh, your backyard. And so we still assign that role to monsters coming in or keeping monsters out. Mm. Yeah, it's really interesting. And I want to talk about hellhounds, actually, but I cannot mention the word hellhound without thinking of the blues. Yeah. And and, and I wasn't sure if you had anything yeah. to add, add to that around hellhounds. Well, well yeah, no, it, it's, you know, Hellhound on My Trail by Robert Johnson. It, it, it's, it's um, I mean, particularly in Robert Johnson's music, particularly in um, a lot of blues, there is this... Uh, blues is often considered as sort of running away from God or running away from those things and with gospel running towards, gospel music running towards ah, God right, again. Okay. But it, 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 uh, with something like Hellhound on My Trail, it's very much, um, I guess, kind of what we would begin to associate with um, where we talk about our you know, black dogs and our mental well-being now, this this idea that uh, that some sort of, past but but in hellhound on my trail and, and the blues very much the idea that some sort of past act means that we're never going to escape anything that it doesn't and we perhaps know that that those robert johnson perhaps knew in that song if you read those lyrics that they might never catch up with him but they were always there and um, they're always they're always just behind him just a little way behind him all, all, all the while and and it kind of becomes a helpful metaphor when you know a little, also a little bit about Robert Johnson's life, which was largely itinerant for, for a, a lot of it, largely moving from place to place, borrowing guitars here and there, and borrowing money here and there, finding accommodation where he could, um, travelling, not always legally, um, from place to place. Um, and then when he gets there, you know, often being thrown in jail, uh, a victim of the racist laws of the time. Huh. Um, and so he was this constantly moving musician that had to keep moving, had to keep moving. And 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 when you hear that song, when you hear Held on a Trail, that's indeed how it opens. Got to keep moving, got to keep moving. Hellhound on my trail. That's cool. And there's, there's I mean, there's two things I want to pick up on there. One is, um, I mean, what's the link between, you know, Robert Johnson, Mississippi Delta and Old Norse sagas? You know, you, you, you couldn't see it, could you? But there's an Old Norse curse, apparently, which translates as... Dogs shall gnaw you in hell. Yeah, and you think so that yeah. that feeling yeah goes yeah. back an awful long way. And then and then you mentioned sort of depression, which I think Churchill is credited with this as famously coining this "my black dog," mm. that that depression that haunted him, that followed him wherever he went. I mean, uh, he became famous for that. You know, what will you do to keep the black dog away that worries you at home? You know, so I don't know whether that's whether any of that imagery influenced Robert Johnson? Well, I think, as, as you say, I think it is, it becomes a handy metaphor, doesn't it? Being 
pursued by something. Yeah. Um, it becomes a handy metaphor for all sorts of things. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So the other thing I wanted to pick up on with, with the Black Hound, and I'm going to come bring it right back to, to where I live in Suffolk, is that there's a lot associated with these animals. Why do we pick up on that? Well, was it that, um, was it that dogs were scavenging the battlefields, gnawing away flesh, you know, and it would have been once upon a time the role of a wolf? You know, so human remains being eaten by dogs. And then there's also a lot around um, humans eating dog meat. Or using dog skins, you know, so we would be horrified by that now, thinking them as our best friends. But there's something there around you know, dog meat being a traditional food of the Celts, which is borne out by a lot of archaeology, where dog remains are often found in refuse sites in a way that how do you tie how do you key that in with us ennobling the dog as the guardian of the underworld and then we we eat their flesh. So was that a ritual eating of dog flesh? to be part of some Celtic religion and take us into the underworld. Um, but it, you know, it's common in various parts of Celtic Britain and in France. Um, and in the Roman period, when the Romans came to Britain, dogs are often found in association with wells. And it takes us right back to the, the watery analogy. Five dog skulls placed in a well in the Romano-British town of Carewent and uh, so, you know, dogs were cast into the deep well um, and actually remains of 16 dogs together with a complete bowl found in a well at Staines near London. Right. Um, so we kind of, we have a whole mixture there of eating dogs, putting dogs in places, uh, which leads me on to, you know, just up the road here in Leyston, a village, a town near where I live, where there's Leyston Abbey. Right. And, and, and uh, in Leyston Abbey, there's a legend of a dog, which proved to be true. So regarding Leyston Abbey, I can only quote you a Daily Mail headline. Nothing further you could rely Always on. Always reliable, really. yeah. Um, so the headline crowed in May 2014. Is this the skeleton of legendary devil dog Black Shuck, who terrorised 16th century East Anglia? Folklore tells of a seven-foot hellhound with flaming eyes. Well, not quite. The archaeologist at the time, sort of Elisa Westcott Wilkins, managing director of Dig Ventures. That's a very good name for an archaeological business. A crowdfunded archaeology excavation project. Anyway, the team unearthed the skeleton during a dig at the ruins of the Abbey, dating back to the 1100s. Wow. And uh, the skeleton was about the size of a Great Dane, so a big dog. And the dog, she said, had clearly been taken care for and buried at the back of the abbey, kind of near the kitchen area. Um, and so when it was uncovered, they were thinking to themselves, is this um, something they clearly had an emotional attachment to this animal and it was cared for and it just happened to be buried there or was it positioned in a way that was significant in some way? Mm. So um, mm. it didn't turn out to be the body of Black Shark because there are still sightings of Black Shark oh, today. He's so, still alive then. So, um, so later sightings include a Suffolk man who said he'd seen the dog one evening on the marshes near Felixstowe, which is just to the south of here, and a midwife from Essex 
He had been cycling home after a delivery in the 1930s, claimed she was followed by a creature through the lanes. Oh. Now, it's easy to dismiss all those things. I mean, right up until 1972, where the Coast Guard at Galston, on, on the coast up here, reported seeing a large black spectral hound on the beach in the early hours of the morning. Um, but a lot of these legends seem to to trip over into following people or people have that archetype in them and see them whether they're now living in other countries. Right. So there are, you know, there are plenty of accounts from Tennessee and Georgia and Australia and and, and some of them may be linked with families that had their origins in, in the UK, but some, some not. Um, quite a story from the 1980s here and I'll just, uh, it's a, my dad rented a room in a house set back in there was a Suffolk County, Long Island, New York. And all of a sudden, in the clearness of the afternoon sun, I saw this enormous black dog-like creature come charging out of the woods. I can't honestly say if it truly came from the woods or manifested at that point. But I can't overemphasize the word dog-like enough because it's obviously not a true dog. Nor was it like anything I've ever seen in my life. It was grossly larger than a real dog, more massive than any hound, and ran in a most unusual, exaggerated gait. I can't pinpoint what it was about its hind legs that was so unsettling to me, other than to say the beast's gait was out of the ordinary for any animal, lame or healthy. I could still see it as it disappeared behind the thin foliage in the edge of the woods. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fascinating. So, so that brings us right to here, and the places where hounds are seen in Suffolk still now. Are they really ghostly black dogs? Are they real dogs? Why are they often associated with um, styles and gates and roadways? Yeah, I mean, obviously it makes obvious sense, but are we dealing again with the hound that guards or transports us across a boundary of some sort? Uh, and so bringing all this back into... Um the human relationship with the non-human world. I, I guess it's not really about dogs here, is it? It's, it's We're using that as the example mm-hmm. today, but uh, it is more about um, um, how we see um, the world around us, um, how we interpret it, how we interpret our fears of what happens after we die, or, um, and, and those sorts of things. So... So what is it then? What does the example of, of black dogs and their and their role in in our in human belief systems and mythologies from the world over, going back to a long way into human history? What is it about that example? What can that? How can we extrapolate that and 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 use it to help us understand the human relationship with the non-human world? It's a really good question, and I you know part of me is fascinated with black shuck because it's a, a myth, a legend right on my doorstep here. And it, um, and who wouldn't want to be perplexed, scared, fascinated by seeing a fiery-eyed, enormous black hound on the track in front of you? But that, for me, that's not what it's about. Because I, when we explore these things on this podcast, I'm interested in what we project onto animals. Our relationship with the uh, the other, as in the natural world, is is always jumbled and confused. It, it goes right back to why we would daubing these animals on cave paintings, you know, 10, 20, 30,000 years ago or more. Why were we 
we're so fascinated by these fellow creatures we share the planet with them what did we what was our relationship with them why did we feel it was important that we had had something with them but also that other world that that notion that you referred to of, of death beyond or what is what what lies in a wait for us when we when we leave this these mortal remains and for some reason that the dog pops up the wolf pops up the dog-headed person pops up as the the person that will help us on that route or bar us from traveling on that route or in a shamanic journey reaching the other side mm. and that to me is is why black shuck and the the hounds of the liminal lands fascinate me so much and i and i think for me it's all of the examples that we've looked at are very rural in in nature you know how many stories do we have <laughs> black shuck being seen in ipswich um in in the town center um and uh and i i think a bit like you it's about what we project onto wilderness onto nature it's the canvas upon which a lot of our fears are are projected um and but it can also be the canvas for for all, so many of our joys and the places where you, certainly you and i it's where we find our security it's where we find um the things that that touch us and the things that live in our hearts uh, we, we find them in nature in the wilderness out there in the wild that's where we that's where we find them but it, it is also this place where um the the gap between um us living in this real corporeal world and the fears that lay beyond. It's, it's also the place where those are, are, are at their thinnest. Thanks for listening to Beneath the Stream. Uh, we really appreciate uh, hearing from you, but most of all, we'd really appreciate if you left us a review. Leave those nice five-star reviews of Beneath the Stream at iTunes or Google Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts and uh, give us your feedback. Thanks so much for listening.